0: A boy is born in a mid-sized town in Northern California. When he's seven months old, his father buys the boy a small putter that he drags around in his little circular baby walker as he learns to walk. At 10 months old, he picks up a club and tries to mimic a swing. He's not old enough to understand concepts, so his dad draws pictures to show him how to place his hands on the grip. At age two and a half, the boy appears on a popular television talk show. Producers set up a putting green and then the toddler comes out with a miniature golf bag draped over his shoulder. Two clubs, almost as tall as he is, are packed inside. Two other guests on the show, Bob Hope and Jimmy Stewart, look on as the boy tees up and then sends a golf ball careening across the stage.
1: How about a putting contest with Mr. Hope? Can he putt too? Oh, yes. Okay, we'll let him putt first.
0: At age four, his dad regularly leaves the boy at a local golf course in the morning to practice and picks him up at the end of the day. By 14, he's put in thousands of hours learning how to drive, putt, and slice. By 15, he will win the Junior Amateur Golf Championship. And by 21, he will become the youngest player ever to win the Masters. For years, Tiger Woods will be the most dominant golfer in the world. But no one is surprised that such a great player started playing so early. Or that he was laser-focused on his sport and had far more than 10,000 hours of practice under his belt. It makes sense. That's how champions are made. Or are they? 5,000 miles away, in a mid-sized town in Switzerland, lives another boy. He enjoys playing lots of different sports, basketball, handball, soccer, tennis. He also skis, wrestles, and skateboards. He dabbles. When he's in his teens, he decides to spend more time on tennis, although he still plays soccer and a few other sports. His parents don't push him towards any particular sport. Twelve years later, at age 21, he wins his first Grand Slam tennis tournament and then goes on to win 19 more. It's so nice, you know, to share this moment and... Thanks to everybody.
2: That's great. To be here. Congratulations, Roger Federer.
0: Two of the best athletes of their generation, two very different paths to greatness. Tiger had an early start, tens of thousands of hours of practice, dedicated training, and singular focus. Everything a world-class athlete is supposed to have. But Roger had something that Tiger didn't. Something that our next big idea curator, Malcolm Gladwell, is going to speak about with David Epstein. Epstein has written a fascinating new book on exactly what makes Roger Federer's journey different from Tiger's. Roger had range.
1: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay
0: From Wondery, I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. I founded The Next Big Idea Club, along with authors Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Daniel Pink, and Adam Grant, to connect people to some of the boldest new thinking shaping our culture and our future. Each week on the podcast, we bring you one idea with the power to change the way you see the world. This week, we're taking a new look at the science of success and whether success is assured more from focusing deeply on one thing or from having a range of experiences. The story you heard at the top of the show is from a book called Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. The author is David Epstein, who's written for Sports Illustrated and ProPublica. His previous book, The Sports Gene, was a New York Times bestseller. Since it was published in May, Range has become a pop psychology phenomenon, the book every CEO is talking about. I can't stop talking about it for two reasons. First, it says the future belongs to generalists, not specialists. If you didn't start swinging a golf club at seven months, this is good news. It's a message of hope for those of us who are improvisers, samplers, dilettantes, hacks. Apparently, we've been on to something all along. And second, it almost completely rejects the premise of one of the most beloved pop psychology books of the last two decades, Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers. For those who haven't read it, Outliers was the book that famously spread the idea that you need to put in 10,000 hours of practice to become great at a specific discipline. The idea has become so widespread that Gladwell even gets name-checked in rap songs, like this one by Macklemore, called 10,000 Hours. With all the heat surrounding this debate, we thought, wouldn't it be great to get these guys in the same room and just have them talk it out? So here they are, live from the 92nd Street Y, David Epstein, the author of Range, and the author of Outliers, and our own Next Big Idea curator, Malcolm Gladwell.
2: I thought we would start by talking about how we know each other.
3: Yeah, I think that's a I wanted to do that like at the end to make sure we did that, so can I say how we know each other? Yes. Like, we'll, like
2: we'll, give, we'll each give our version of events because I suspect it might be different, but
3: you go first. Okay. My version is that um, in our relationship, our, our, our first date was, I guess, me criticizing some of your work in my first book. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I remember when, you know, not expecting that book to do much. I, was at like a very small event in Greenwich Village and somebody came by and said, you know, I just saw reading your book at a cafe, Malcolm Gladwell. And I was like, oh, sh- darn. Because I didn't, I didn't think it would get on your radar. Yeah. And then our second date was you critiquing me back in The New Yorker, also being very positive, but also critiquing me back in well, the New know, Yorker. I, well, you know, hold on.
2: I wrote, a, I wrote an article for the magazine, which was, I mean, it was the warmest, sweetest embrace yes. of your book. Yes. And then I did a separate piece for the website where I gently push back against some of your more outrageous assertions. Okay. (laughs) And then, I'm I'm gonna pick up the story from here. Okay. Well, I was in Washington, D.C., and I'm going into NPR, and then you come swinging through the door. Me? You did, did you not remember this? We had a, it was, in the movies, they would call us meeting cute, (laughs) and then, for some reason we started running together.
3: Yeah, well, no, you, you skipped over our, our third date. Yeah. Which was the first time we actually met in person, which was at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference.
2: Oh, that's right.
3: That was the first time we met in person. We were invited to do a debate that was 10,000 hours versus the sports gene. Yeah. And, and in some ways, my, my preparation for that debate, because you're very clever and I'd never met you and I didn't want to get embarrassed, Yeah. Um, so I, I did a lot of homework and, um, that, that debate in some ways seeded some of the ideas for this book, but what I really want to say about that debate was you could very much have just like, tried to you know, crush me or like, use your literary clout, but instead we ended up having a great conversation. Not only that, but when we came off the stage, you um, told me what you thought my good points were and said, <laughs> when we're back in New York tomorrow, why don't you go running? He said, this was a great idea, you should explore that more. And I think in some ways it empowered me to take on a more amorphous and ambitious book in this project. Um, and that sort of openness and exchange, I think, made me better. I think there are too many conflicts that are viewed as zero-sum ideas. We were both disincentivized from agreeing about anything in many ways. Um, but it made me better. And I, for me, it's kind of a model of an intellectual relationship. So yeah. I, I really appreciate were that. You,
2: I mean, I feel suddenly guilty because... I had developed this whole theory of love bombing,
3: which was when
2: you're, someone criticizes you, the only appropriate response is to love them back, even if you're doing it cynically, um, because it completely disarms them. It's the last thing they're expecting. But in your case, I started out thinking, oh, I'll just love bomb him," And then I realized, actually, he has convinced me. So it started cynical and ended up totally idealistic in the sense that I was like, oh, he's totally right. Um, but wait. We have to get to the point. So we had this discussion, it wasn't a debate, it was a discussion at the MIT Sloan's conference, and yeah. you said it sowed the seeds for
3: this book. What was the seed? Um, so in trying to anticipate what I thought you would have to argue in this debate, um, I, I said, well, you'll have to argue in favor of early specialization in sports. And so I went and looked at all the research I could find about the development of athletes, and it showed that this pattern that athletes who go on to become elite have a sampling period where they play a broad range of sports. Uh, they, they gain these, these broad general skills. They become a scaffolding for later skills. They learn about their interests. They learn about their abilities. They delay specializing until later than their peers who plateau at lower levels. And you know in some ways, that was incompatible with with some aspects of the 10,000-hour theory. And so when we were walking off the stage, and we, we framed it as the Roger versus Tiger problem.
0: This is cool. Malcolm Gladwell and David Epstein have a conversation at a sports analytics conference. Walking off the stage, they call it the Roger versus Tiger problem. And afterwards, David keeps thinking about it going deeper. And a few years later, he publishes Range. This is a great example of how two people sharing ideas can lead to greater discovery. So what is the Roger versus Tiger problem? It's the question of which approach to excellence works best. Specialists like Tiger who devote all their time and energy to a single thing, or generalists like Roger who try many different things before picking the right specialization. So we have these two,
2: two of the greatest athletes of the last yeah. 50 years represent diametrically opposed models of development. One well-known, one unknown, yes. element story. We're in love with the tiger model. Yeah. If I polled the audience, yeah. most of them would say the tiger implicitly is, is the model that leads to greatness. Mm-hmm. You're arguing, no, it's the Roger model. Why, it doesn't, one thing I've never understood is why did we fall in love with the tiger model and not like the Roger model? Um, um, wait, I thought you made us
3: fall in love with the tiger model. Don't blame me. <laughs> You're, I, I'm just, I did not write a book about sports. I'm just kidding. Everyone is, says <laughs> everyone I know, sports. I know. No, that's true. That, that, is, that is very true, that um, ideas that you started became outrageous in other hands in many cases. Um, but, but in terms of Tiger, as I think to steal, it's dramatic. It's incredibly dramatic. There's video of him on YouTube at age two. It, it makes a ton of intuitive sense. It's very easy for a prescription to tell people. Um, and I think, as you said, we're obsessed with precocity, right? You said these child prodigy videos are human-cat videos. Um, and, and I think that's true. And I'm mad I didn't think of that line for my book.
2: <laughs> but is that, an, is that enough,
3: though? Because it's also clear
2: that Tiger pays an extraordinary price for his precocity in a way that Federer does not. Right. In fact, it's not difficult to reach the conclusion that one of the reasons Tiger had a kind of meltdown for many years is that he really has been a prisoner of golf since he was this high. And one of the reasons Federer
3: seems so well adjusted is that he, he had a normal childhood. He did. He completely had a normal childhood. His, his, the, the writer who probably knows the family best called his parents Pulley, not, not Pushy. So he, he did have a very normal childhood. Yeah. yeah. So, so
2: even given the fact that the Tiger model is costly, we still embrace it.
3: Yes, because, well, we're obsessed with excellence. And I think... So if the, one of the themes in Range, I think, is that there are... Um, and maybe this doesn't apply to golf, and we can talk about that, but that there are things that you can do that cause head starts that actually systematically undermine long term development so let 's walk through the reasons why
2: the tiger model doesn't work. Walk us through the match argument, which is a really interesting one, which had
3: never occurred to me the, So match quality is this term that that economists use to basically describe the degree of fit between. Um, an individual's abilities, their interests, and the work that they do. It turns out to be incredibly important for motivation, for um, uh, their performance, right? And, it, and even their apparent grit. So you get good fit and it'll look like grit when someone does something, uh, when, they're, when they're in something that fits correctly. And the problem is in, in sports selection, this dovetails with something you've written about, the earlier it goes, the less likely you you optimize someone's match quality. So you've written about the relative age effect, right? So I was just looking at a breakdown of the birthdays of soccer players in the U-17, under-17 European Championships, 47% of them were born in January, February, and March, and 6% in the last three months of the year. And that's because as we push selection earlier and earlier, All the coaches are selecting for is the kids that are effectively a year older and they are actually biologically mature and they're mistaking that for talent and then they're in the pipeline. You've deselected the other kids and it's getting more and more exacerbated where we're picking for things that have nothing to do with the traits you ultimately want because we're driving selection earlier and earlier.
0: What Epstein is basically saying here is that when you try to match a kid to a sport too soon, you run the risk of seeing talent where there isn't any and pushing kids who aren't ready onto a
3: path that isn't a match. So one of the things that happens when you delay matching is you give people a chance to get more signal about what they're good at and they end up picking better matches for themselves and not just in sports. One of the other studies in range looks at timing of specialization in higher education and the question the economist asks is who wins the trade-off the early specializers or the late specializers and what he finds is the early specializers do in fact jump out to an income lead after college but by year six the later specializers who have picked a fast a better match have a faster growth rate fly past them and the early specializers start quitting in much higher numbers.
0: Epstein found the only way early specializing works is if it comes from the child. In 2000, Tiger Woods told reporters that his father never asked him to play golf. He asked his father. So it was Tiger's interest that mattered and motivated him to excel.
3: You shouldn't be worried about missing the next Tiger Woods because if there's that like, incredible, incredible sort of outlier display of interest, like that's not something that his father manufactured from the get-go. Yeah. So, so I think people are worried about missing that, but really, um, what you should be oriented toward is match quality. So that's
2: one argument that by... And I, I can see, actually, it's, sort of, it's kind of fascinating to apply that outside of sports as well. So the equivalent would be to observe of your six-year-old that uh, she has a facility for counting and to put her immediately into a pre-math PhD program. That's... <laughs> that would be... That, but that's exactly what,
3: yes. what parents yeah, are doing. And, and in fact, right? what they're... Obs- and counting is a good example because... That, what these things that parents do are usually based on is the observation of what's called a closed skill, something like counting or the kid walks early or something like that. And those kinds of closed skills that aren't these more general pieces of scaffolding that, that are good for long-term development, there's a fade-out effect on those kinds of skills, whether they're in sports, whether they're in math, lots of, lots of academic programs that are meant to give kids a boost early on to get them on a different trajectory. And and it does initially, because the way you can give them the fastest improvement is by teaching them closed skills that have to do with procedures that are used over and over and over. And there's a ubiquitous fade-out effect, which is actually just other people catching up, because everyone's gonna learn that skill eventually, and it ceases to become an advantage. And so we make choices based on precocity in these closed skills in many cases that are not really in the long-term advantage. So second
2: argument is that in order to excel at a complex skill in the long term, you need to build a broad base. Yeah. So walk us through that, both, I'm interested in this one, this one's even more relevant outside the sports realm. Yeah, yeah. But give us both sports and non-sports in this instance.
3: Yeah, so I wonder if this is maybe where we should introduce the, the issue of the kind and wicked learning environment, basically, which are, which are terms taken from a psychologist named Robin Hogarth. The kind learning environment is where All the information is available. Next steps are totally clear. Uh, People often wait for each other to take turns. Um, Patterns repeat. Feedback is automatic and totally accurate after everything you do. So golf is almost like an industrial task. You try to do known movements over and over and over with as little deviation as possible. That's a kind learning environment.
0: Golf isn't the only area that lends itself to a kind learning environment. A child prodigy named Judith Polgar proved it worked in chess too.
1: Learn more at TIAA.org backslash Promises Pay Off.
0: On September 9th, 2002, 24-year-old Judith Polgar goes to the Kremlin to conduct important state business of a sort. She's there to preside over kings and queens and knights on a chessboard. Her opponent is Gary Kasparov, arguably the greatest chess player of all time. His secret? Consistency. When he plays the black pieces, he almost always opens with the aggressive Sicilian defense. But today, against Judith, he tries something different. The Berlin defense, a strategy he's never used in his entire career. Polgar sees the new pattern immediately, and she pounces, moving up the center with her rooks and sweeping aside Kasparov's pawns. He makes more mistakes, and she exploits all of them. After 42 moves, Kasparov resigns.
1: The world of international chess has had its fair share of child prodigies, but none more astonishing than the young Hungarian girl, Judith Polgar. A 12 year old schoolgirl has won a
2: big international chess tournament in London, and Judith Polgar from Hungary has made history. She is the first female to win the world mixed challenge against many
1: grandmasters. How long have you been playing? I start at five, and you practice how many hours a day?
0: 6-7. Judith's father, Laszlo, taught her to play. He'd come up with a theory while reading biographies of brilliant thinkers who showed promise at a young age. If he started his own children early, he thought, he could mold them into greatness. He put his theory to test with his firstborn daughter, Susan. He started her playing pawn wars at age four. Much like Tiger's mini-putter, Susan worked with the littlest pieces. The first player to advance to the back row won. Within months, she was studying moves, traps, and endgames. A year later, she was beating grown men at chess clubs in Budapest. The system was working. By the time Judith, the youngest, was born, Laszlo had perfected the kind learning environment. He had compiled thousands of records of game sequences and created a huge database. All of the girls excelled, but it was Judith who would become the youngest grandmaster and would eventually be ranked eighth in the world overall. Laszlo's experiment had worked. It worked so well that the story of the Polgar sisters was soon cited in books, magazines, articles, and TV shows as proof that an early start was all we needed to raise a generation of prodigies who could solve all the world's problems, even the biggest ones like cancer and AIDS. There was just one problem. It assumed chess was like all other activities. It's not. Chess is a predictable universe of patterns that repeat over and over. When we leave that kind of controlled environment, the advantage of intense specialization evaporates. In 2007, a TV crew gave Judith's sister Susan a test. First, they quickly flashed a chessboard on the side of a van that showed 28 chess pieces mid game. Then they asked her to recreate it. She did it quickly and perfectly. Then they flashed another board, this time with fewer pieces, placed at random across the board she could not recreate it at all. What she was able to recognize were not chess pieces on squares, but a set of patterns, relationships. In his book, Range, David Epstein argues that intense specialization only works in kind learning environments, where patterns repeat and where feedback is accurate and rapid, like with chess, like with golf, but unlike most other things where there's often no predictability. The opposite end of a kind environment is a wicked environment, You may have heard of wicked problems, where there's no clear single solution.
3: Epstein says wicked environments are similar. On the wicked end are challenges where the the rules may not be clear. People are acting in real time. They're more dynamic. Uh, You may or may not get feedback after everything you do. Next steps aren't always clear. The feedback may be delayed or maybe inaccurate.
0: It's like predicting the weather, or financial or political trends, or diagnosing medical issues and treatments, or physics problems, jazz, art, In all these areas, there's no immediate feedback or consistent repeatable pattern. In
3: these environments, a different kind of training is needed. The closer you are to the wicked end of the spectrum, the more you have to do what's called transfer, where you take knowledge and skills and have to apply them to situations you have never seen before. So this more repetitive using procedures knowledge then can become an impediment because you're stuck doing the same things when you really have to transfer to situations you haven't seen before. Starting a business would be wicked starting a business would be, would be wicked, and I think that's one reason why, like, if, there was some recent research from LinkedIn that showed, like, people who, who become successful executives, one of the best predictors is the number of job functions they've worked across within an industry.
2: Yeah, yeah. So it's odd that the, uh, the, the kind of myth of precocity and the... Uh, the idea that the Tiger model is so important is relevant only in the, the areas that we're least interested
3: in. That's, yeah, a very clever way to phrase it. And, and that's so one of the things that I was critiquing in range was you know, books in, in the, that we've both read sort of in the performance genre have used the Tiger model, is the most popular model from which to extrapolate to everything else in the world. Like literally, I think talent is overrated. The back cover says Tiger Woods, um, the Polgers, the Chess family, and this is what works for anything that you care about. And yeah. in fact, it's that leap that is a problem. It may work in golf, but it's the extrapolation where we've made a mistake. Yeah, yeah. So what's a good example of a wicked sport? I, I don't think any sports are that wicked. I think because they're all rule-bound. So what Hogarth said is he said, tennis is more wicked than, than golf. Because yeah. tennis is dynamic, you have, to, you have to use so-called anticipatory skills where the sport is actually happening too fast for you to react to. So you need to learn to pick up cues in a player's body and spin of the ball and things like that to, to act faster than you could otherwise. What about, I was thinking that there's a third reason why you would want to take uh,
2: a, uh, a generalist course as opposed to a specialization course. And that is that you, um, it is only through taking a generalist approach that you can have novel skills. You know, every now and again, there's someone like a- Akim Olajuwon or Steve Nash these brilliant basketball players who have strong grounding in soccer. Yeah. And that's very rare among basketball players. But we say of those who come to basketball late from soccer that they have certain skills that are unusual, and that is what gives them their, their, uh, their special advantage, their comparative advantage. So it's, it's quite conceivable that had he not played soccer, Steve Nash would not have been
3: a superb NBA player. It just so happens that yeah. I was emailing with Steve Nash about this last week, Canadian Are you serious? royalty, yes? Are you serious? and and Steve's a big soccer fan you know. And, and France, which just won the World Cup, overhauled its development pipeline starting decades ago to incorporate this. So a... a, a a French soccer play, young soccer player plays about half as many formal games as an American soccer player of the same age, and and they have this saying: there's no there's no remote control, meaning the coaches aren't even allowed to talk to them most of the time. They want to do this like free form, unstructured stuff. So Steve Nash didn't even get a basketball until he was thirteen, by the way. And I like him as an example because he's he's relatively normal sized, like he's not that big. Steve Nash is someone who sort
2: of physically resembles me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he uh, and happens to be. One of the 10 greatest point guards of the last
3: 50 years. Two time NBA MVP, for sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, he's
2: maybe a, one of the yeah. best. I mean, he's Three. a yeah. legendary basketball player, and he's a, he's a skinny guy from Canada. Who'd, I mean, you could just, the, the number of parallels right. between him and me are astonishing. Right. This, um, right. <laughs> this Venn diagram is UN Steve Nash alone. But this raises another thing that's wrong with really specialization. Which, again, sounds like it's specific to sports, but applies. And I want to talk about the, this notion, and you pointed out that when you specialize early and you're doing the same repetitive movements over and over again, your risk of injury later in life starts to increase.
3: By the way, I want to say one interesting thing about the injury issue, which is Cirque du Soleil, lots of Olympians, um, they, looking at this kind of they they have a ton of physiology data, decided to have their performers learn the basics of other performers' skills, not because they were going to perform them, but to see if it would make them more creative. And subjectively, they thought it did. But they measure their injury rates next to Canadian gymnastics and drop their injury rates by a third. Mm-hmm. So something about doing that makes people less fragile. And I have theories about what that is, but it doesn't matter. The fact is it works. So, but this
2: is, there's a beautiful parallel to this in non-sporting things. Yeah. Which is this notion of burnout. Yeah. And I wonder whether that's not a really crucial, that somehow there is something about early specialization that leaches the joy out of an intellectual
3: activity and limits it far too early. But I think you're absolutely right. So like when I started, I had to write about music in range of course, because it's probably the, the, the next domain that's most associated with early specialization. And when you look at those studies, the main reason that people, promising musicians quit is they report a mismatch between the instrument they play and the instrument they wanted to play. And if you look at the pattern of their development, they will usually, um, so the, the ones who come on to become the best typically have a sampling period just like um, the, the athletes. What, what the ones who go on to become exceptional, they early on spread their early practice across a larger number of instruments, whereas what it looks like for the ones who plateau at lower levels and or quit, um, they have this first instrument where they get tons of practice and, and someone kind of tells them, you know, you can't switch now, you have a head start, you'll get behind. So it's, you know, sunk cost fallacy kind of thing and, and they end up quitting. Let's talk about this in terms of schooling. What this, so if you're, if I make David
2: Epstein czar of American schooling. Mm. Let's let's leave sports aside for a while. I would like you to redesign the curriculum of K through 12 to maximize people's um, development as human beings. Actually, not even K through 12, K through the end of college. Tell me what you would do in light of what you've learned from
3: range. Geez, what a question. Um, The first thing I would do is before I would just overhaul the system from the bottom, I, I, th- I would start with things that we actually could do at no cost today, which is, so, so chapter four is called Learning Fast and Slow. Um, it details these really well-known findings in cognitive psychology about learning that again are deeply counterintuitive because they show that the quickest way to demonstrate progress actually undermines long-term progress. So the, the, probably the single most surprising study in the book to me was this one done at the Air Force Academy.
0: We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability. If
1: you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One.
0: Each year, the Air Force Academy brings in hundreds of cadets. Along with full scholarships, they get a rigorous academic program, which always includes three math courses Calculus 1, 2, and 3. Every section uses the same syllabus, same exams, and same grading standards. The only difference is the way the professors teach the class. A couple of economists thought this would make a great case study for seeing how different teaching styles affect student performance. They spent a decade compiling data, and at the end, they found some clear correlations. Like the Calculus 1 professors whose students did the best on their exams got the most favorable student ratings. That is, the students liked them. Professors whose students did worse weren't so popular. But this is where it gets fascinating. The researchers also found that the students who loved their Calculus 1 professors tended to do worse in advanced courses than the ones who learned from the less popular ones. David Epstein
3: talks about it in Range. There was almost an inverse relationship between how well students overperformed. In calculus one and how much they then underperformed in the follow-on courses and between how well they rated that first professor and it turned out what those professors were doing was they were teaching using procedures knowledge they were teaching a narrow curriculum that worked really well for the calculus one test but did not set up these broad frameworks that allow you to scaffold later knowledge and so again that's so deeply counterintuitive counterintuitive that you could do something um, that causes this kind of short-term progress and somehow undermines long-term development. And so I think you, know, you, can, you can kind of see where I'm getting at this fact that the way we use testing as evaluation can be a real problem if you're incentivizing people um, to impart using procedures knowledge that can make kids do the best on the test but is not the best for their long-term development. Yeah. So that's a problem. Testing is wonderful but for learning. So there are three sort of three strategies, testing, interleaving, and spacing. Testing is just, quiz yourself, right? You want to force someone to generate an answer before they know what they're doing, because it's the attempt to generate an answer that then primes your brain to remember something when you are told the answer. Interleaving means doing tons of different kinds of problems. The way that math study usually works in the US is you do a type of problem, do it, do it, do it, do it, problem A, 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 B, 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 C, 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 C. And that leads to using procedures knowledge. What you want to do is never show the same exact problem twice, and what that forces the learner to do is to match a strategy to a problem instead of learn how to execute a procedure. That's called interleaving, where you mix up these problems. Third, spacing.
0: Spacing means, literally, to put space between learning sessions. Do one thing, move on to something else, and then come back to the original task. So you're repeatedly coming back
3: to a thing. A famous spacing study, Spanish vocabulary learners, they were taught, one group was taught eight hours on one day, the other group four hours on day one, four hours a month later. All same total training. Eight years later, when they were brought back, group two remembered 250% more with no study in the interim, right? Mm-hmm. Same amount of study.
2: Underneath all that is this really fundamental insight which is that the, sometimes the very best teachers are those who disadvantage us in the short term.
3: Yeah, yes. And I mean, that's one of the themes of the book is that the things that you can do that look the best in the short term, um, in, order to be, in your terms, in order to be the best at X, it seems intuitive that you should just start doing X as soon as possible, but that yeah. turns out not to be the right thing. More, more, in a more conceptual level, if I were the school czar, there's a section in the book where I talk about the army and their failure to retain their most talented officers. And first they tried to throw money at them and that, the people who were gonna stay stayed anyway and the people who were gonna leave left anyway, and that was a half billion dollars of taxpayer money. Um, and then they started something called talent-based branching, where instead of saying, here's your career track, up or out, Someone goes in and say here's a bunch of career tracks. You can sample a couple. We'll pair you with a coach and after each one, they'll help you reflect on what you learned about your own abilities, what you learned about your own interests, and you'll keep triangulating until you get this better match. One of my favorite quotes in the book is from Herminia Ibarra, who studies how people find careers that fit them. She says you learn we learn who we are in practice, not in theory. And what she means is there's this whole industry that tells you you can just introspect and decide who you are, but in fact, The only way we learn about ourselves and our options is by doing stuff and reflecting on it. You know what the enemy of what you're describing is?
2: Is uh, self-knowledge. I've always thought that self-knowledge was overrated. And what you're describing is the benefits of not knowing. You're asking people to sample widely outside their areas of specialty. Or their areas of interest. Or their areas of, not interest, their areas of imagined interest and imagined specialty. right? On the, on the grounds that they don't know that's what right. it is that's, that, will, that they'll either thrive at or what
3: they need to be good. Their insight into themselves is constrained by their roster of previous experiences, period. Yeah. Um, and, and that's an important thing to know. And not only that- but- Here,
0: Malcolm asked David if he thinks schools should forget about trying to match students to their strengths or interests and just assign them courses randomly. David says yes, but with a caveat.
3: So you're in favor of randomization, and what was your caveat? Um, that I think, especially at those early ages, yes. you just want to make sure and anything they do. Like when I when I first started in training to be a scientist, when when I did my first lab work, I thought here's where I'm going to learn that um, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And I learned that maybe this wasn't what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And I wasn't happy about that, but that was a very important signal to get. But I think you want to make sure that, that you help them maximize their learning from these experiences. And, and some people do that on their own, so-called self-regulatory learners. And the thing they do the most of is they stop and reflect. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... So I think you want to help them and make sure that they're getting signal from whatever it is that they're doing. And, and I don't think you would lose much by randomizing anyway because the fact is, like, when Jim Flynn, who I think we, we both know, studied college students both in, in, in the UK and in the US, he found that the skills that they were able to use to get good grades at elite colleges had a, I think it was about a, a .03 correlation with their abilities on a test of critical thinking that really matters in the world. Mm-hmm. So we're clearly imbuing people with skills that are no good for critically analyzing the actual world. So I, so I don't think you stand to lose very much in most cases.
2: What about, this brings up a second notion, which is, um, does this argument suggest that you may learn more from situations where you are, relatively speaking, performing badly than situations where you're performing well?
3: Well, so, so cognitive psych- no relationship? No, I mean, the cognitive psychologist, Nate Cornell would say, if, if you're, um, Difficulty is not a sign that you aren't learning, but ease is. And I think that's a, that's a good thing to keep in mind. If something is too easy, then maybe you like to do it, but that does not mean that you're not learning much, right? Like you can go to the gym and lift the same weights the same number of times every day and you won't slide backward, but you also won't, won't cause adaptation. And I don't want to rag on schools too much, because I, no. I, 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 I do point out that everyone thinks that education has gotten worse since their day, right? I put in range some questions from You know, like the 60s, and there is without question, middle schoolers have a better grasp of basic concepts than their forebears did, without question. But if you look at the test questions that test the same level in the 60s, it was like, you know, rate times time problem, just apply it. And and now it's like these complex word problems that require multiple steps. And so the challenge has gotten much harder because we're not training people to do repetitive tasks anymore because we're not in that same kind of industrial world. So school is actually doing better. It's just the challenge has outpaced that, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's not just a challenge
0: for schools. It's a challenge for all of us. With everything moving so fast, how do we know when to jump on something that intrigues us or excites us and ride it for a while?
3: Presumably, you could keep searching forever. I mean, I have no idea what I'm going to do when I grow up. I literally have no idea what I'm going to do now. Like, no idea. I mean, when I was a teenager, I thought I was going to go to the Air Force Academy, be a test pilot and be an astronaut, and I've gotten, like, linearly less long-term (laughs) goal-directed. I don't know whether um,
2: uh, whether your, your particular position right now as a best-selling author is generalizable to the general public.
3: No, I mean, but in the, 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 the Dark Horse Project, in the book, the, the, the common trait of people who find fulfillment in their careers is a focus on short-term planning. And that yeah. resonated with me so much such that I ended up as a subject in the study, which I disclose in the book.
0: In the Dark Horse Project, researchers at Harvard wanted to study people who arrived at success in a roundabout way. They looked at various professions from cooks to architects to piano tuners to midwives. They found every one of the people who were masters in their craft landed there in an unexpected way. They considered them dark horses.
3: They all came in and would say, well, you know, don't tell people to do what I did because... I came through this weird path where I thought I was going to do one thing, and then I tried it, I didn't like it, so I zig and zag. And and they all view themselves as having come out of nowhere, which is why the researchers called it the Dark Horse Project. Mm -hmm. And their common trait is this short-term planning where they don't look around and say, here's who's younger than me and has more than me. They say, Here's who I am right now, here are my skills and interests, here are the opportunities in front of me. I'll try this one, here's my hypothesis about what I'll learn. And a year from now I'll change because I will have learned something new. And they just do that until they get to a spot where they can kind of uniquely succeed and feel fulfilled. And so I've totally abandoned that that longer-term planning in favor of these short-term, proactive experiments, and and why would you have to stop? You can keep doing that your whole life. Companies do
2: a version of this, right? They silo people from the Mm get-go. You -hmm. start out in marketing. You stay in marketing, Mm -hmm. unless you're one of the very, very few to rise to the very top, and then maybe you get a shot to... Are you saying you would do much more uh,
3: cross-specialization, with even for people in their 30s and 40s? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, The... You know, one of my favorite characters in the book kind of got her first like, real job when she was 54, basically. Or like Andre Geim, the only, in the last chapter, the only scientist who's won both the Ig Nobel Prize for the silliest research and the Nobel Prize for, um, and he says- Which one did he win first? Ig Nobel. Oh, I see. For levitating frogs with magnets. Um, and Why is that Ig Nobel? That sounds like they, really interesting yeah, to me. They, but he likes to say, I, don't, I like to say I don't do research, I only do search, and I sort of love that. Well, it's interesting because the, What that reminds us is that we have, going back to this question
2: of match, we have way too much confidence in the accuracy of the match mechanisms that are in place. For sure. Like, so you, you know, there there is no reason for someone who is 25 or 28 or 30 years old to believe they have, the system has successfully matched them with what they're what they ought to be doing.
3: Yeah, I mean, or you can, you, I mean, you can always be looking to make that match better, right? And again, this is what the Army realized, where they said, our, our traditional tests mm. are not doing a, as good a job as this talent-based branching, basically, yeah, and that you yeah. have to actually do some experimentation. And maybe that's annoying, but it should be viewed as an investment in long-term development. Careers. Well, there's a
2: lovely, if I'm remembering this, this research correctly, they make this lovely observation that boys define what they like as what they're good at, and girls don't. They separate those two Hmm. traits. There were all these brilliant girls who were brilliant in science and math who were leaving science and math. And they they thought they had scrubbed out all the bias and scrubbed out all the, and uh, and they were so puzzled by this. And what they realized in the end was it was this simple, this difference in definition. It's a a matching definition. Hmm. Boys matched things they were good at, thinking that 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 correlated with what they would like girls never made that decision. And in many ways, the, the girl position is superior to the boy position. Don't you think? Typical.
0: Of course, it's not just girls and boys who are looking for the right kind of match. It's also employers trying to figure out when a machine might be better suited to a job than a person.
3: As one of the oncologists I quoted said, the reason Watson did well on Jeopardy and, and not in cancer research is because we know the answers to Jeopardy. Um, and so I think in those, those challenges that are more repetitive... Yeah, um, those are much more amenable to automation. Or if you look at things like James Besson's work, a good example is the ATM. When that came in, it was supposed to obviate bank tellers. And in fact, we, it, it caused more bank tellers because it made every branch cheaper. And so banks could open more branches and they could hire more tellers overall. But it totally changed the job from someone who had these very specific procedural skills that had to do with transactions to someone who has this much more amorphous human behavior, marketing, customer service um, kind of orientations, these much more sort of softer skills. And, and even even where AI is um, really good, like in chess. I mean, it was Gary Kasparov who recognized when he played Deep Blue, Morovic's paradox, this idea that humans and computers have opposite strengths and weaknesses. And he realized the computer was far superior at tactics, which is patterns. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, you know, the, that's most of chess, and Grandmaster's pattern study is their advantage. But Humans are good at strategy, this bigger picture planning of how to manage the little battles to win the war when the humans are doing the thing that humans are uniquely good at. Why, are, why do you think everyone is so kind of powerfully well, attracted to this argument? I think there have been very strong arguments that people perceive going in the other direction, for one. Um, why are you I, looking at me? <laughs> no reason. <laughs> Who are you looking at, David? <laughs> Don't see anyone behind me. <laughs> um, but I think this is a topic, how broad or how specialized to be, that is um, important to everyone, whether they discuss it explicitly or implicitly. I genuinely think it is
2: um, an eye-opening and much-needed and beautifully written um, book, and you're to be congratulated. And, and,
3: you know, I want to thank you for your support of it, because like I said, this has been like a model sort of Intellectual relationship for me. You're
2: making me sound like I'm yeah. an old guy, like this is Karate Kid. No, I'm, and you're. <laughs> I take it all back. <laughs> take it all back. All right. Thank you yeah. very much, Dave. Thank you.
0: If you have thoughts about Range or other books in this series, and we know you do, we'd love you to join the conversation at nextbigideaclub.com. There you can subscribe and receive a free copy of Malcolm Gladwell's new book, Talking to Strangers. Podcast listeners get an additional 10% off with promo code PODCAST. Learn more at nextbigideaclub.com. If you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art of this podcast. You'll find the episode notes and a link to the Next Big Idea Club. A special thanks to David Epstein. His book, Range, is available wherever books are sold. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. This episode of The Next Big Idea was written by Austin Cross, produced by Michael Cobnott. Our associate producer is Caleb Bissinger, sound designed by Jake Korsky. Our senior producer is Jonathan Miller. Our editor is Emma Cortland. Executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Marshall Louis, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering.